0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Today I'm thinking about processes. The process of helping us to become who we're supposed to be. <clears throat> Back in the 1960s, uh, the police department in Houston, Texas had discovered that there was a great increase of crime, uh, all kinds of things, especially like robberies and, and armed robberies, and they did a study to see what was going on, who and why, and they discovered that The real increase came for, in the youth area, from ages 13 to 18. So in trying to figure out how to combat that, they put together a document that they sent out through their Chamber of Commerce. It's kind of interesting. Here's what it's called, the 12 Rules for Raising Delinquent Children. How to Have Delinquent Children. I'm going to run through these really quick, because you may want to take notes, but, uh, or you can Google it yourself. Number one, begin with empathy to give the child everything he wants. In this way, he'll grow up to believe the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. It will also encourage him to pick up cuter phrases that will blow off the top of your head later. Number three never give him any spiritual training wait until he's 21 and then let him decide for himself now remember this is the Houston Police Department that came up with that not a pastor number four avoid the use of the word wrong it may develop a guilt complex this will condition him to believe later when he's arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being persecuted number five Pick up everything he leaves lying around, books, shoes, clothes, do everything for him so that he will be experienced in throwing all responsibility to others. Number six, let him read any printed material he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but don't worry about his mind feasting on garbage. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children, in this way They will not be too shocked when the home is broken up later. Now, remember, this is how to raise a delinquent. It's not recommended by us. So, uh, number eight, give the child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his. Why should he have things as tough as you did? Number nine, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Denial may lead him to harmful frustration. Number 10, take his part against neighbors, teachers, policemen. They're all prejudiced against your child. Number 11, when he gets into real trouble, apologize to yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him. Number 12, prepare yourself for a life of grief because you're surely going to have it. That's from the 1960s, but I think we should send this to every home in America today. Uh, It is so practical. I heard um, Juan Solomon say this morning, you either sacrifice for your children or you, in effect, have sacrificed your children. And I really do believe he is correct when saying that. So I'm thinking about processes. That's the process of how to raise a delinquent child But that's not the process you and I are interested in. I'm thinking about the process that God uses to develop us to be what he wants us to be. And oh, by the way, it really parallels the very same process that mums and pops use to raise their children. Now, I've never been a mother. Shocking, isn't it? (laughs) However, when my kids were young... Ann and I often volunteered to do things at the school and I remember um, that first Christmas when we were doing the party for the class and a little boy, probably a first grader, said to me, who are you? And I said, I'm your room mother. I believe he's still in counseling today. But uh, I've never done that. But I've been a parent and I've seen parents and so have you. And I know that there is a process that we go through in trying to help correct and direct our children. For instance, your two or three-year-old, and we've all seen this, if we haven't been involved in it, we've all seen it. Your two or three-year-old darts out from the yard, heads toward the street. That's frightening. Trust me. You run and you grab them right at the curb, and you apply the Board of Education to the seed of knowledge. You spank them. You give just enough pain to keep it in perspective to help them go on. Then you take their hand and you take them to the backyard and you help them find the sandbox. And so you guide them into a new activity. And while you're there, you're just helping them to mold themselves into what they should be doing and ultimately you're restored to full fellowship with them that's the process God used for us and that's the process we're going to look at today last week we looked at why some of these unexplained unexpected unknowing unwelcome tragedies common uh, we suggested seven different things and uh, there may be a lot more than that and to Abbreviate that, we could say sometimes it's due to sin, our own sin, and sometimes it's not. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus was interacting with the religious leaders of the day, and in verses 1 through 4, uh that whole idea does sin affect us? Why does everything happen because we're sinful? He used two illustrations to say no. One of them was He brought up to them, remember the Galileans that Pilate had executed and then mingled their blood with their sacrifices. Uh, Were they more sinful than the other people around them? And Jesus said, no. Then he talked about those 18 individuals who, when the Tower of Siloam fell over on them and killed them, and he said, so are they bigger sinners than everybody else? He said, no. And, And that's true. Sometimes it is due to sin, Sometimes there's other explanations. Go back and see what we talked about last week for that. When things come into our lives, a lot of us want to explain God. What is he doing? How is he a part of this? And and that's okay, but ultimately God doesn't need to be explained. Maybe I do, but God doesn't need to be explained. When we were young, maybe you did this too, <clears throat> there was a simple little prayer that we use uh, sometimes before we eat. If I remember the prayer correctly, it went something like this. God is great and God is good. Then it finished up, I love that you can Google this later, but uh, the Laverne and Shirley show, I remember when Squigley prayed this, it was hilarious. And he prayed, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for his food. And Shirley started arguing with him that that's... And and they had an argument over all prayers have to rhyme. Google it. It's really funny. God is great, and God is good. It took me a long time before I understood that. Because God is great. He's powerful. He's mighty. He can do anything He wants to do. But the neat thing is He's controlled by the fact that God is good. And that He's loving and compassionate, and kind, and both of those kind of direct his activity. People have said that life is like a puzzle, and you probably would add, with a couple pieces missing, but um, it can be a puzzle to us. Others have used the illustration of a tapestry, where maybe you look underneath and all the strings are going different directions, different colors, what's the sense of this? But if you flip it over, you find the beauty of a design and and a pattern that's just gorgeous and life can be that way we'll we'll know more when we get to the other side that's part of what paul was saying in second corinthians 5 7 when he told us that we walk by faith not by sight we don't see everything today we don't know all the things we're not given the answers but someday we will so Here's the process that parents use to raise kids, but God uses to develop us and to put us where he wants us to be. First of all is he warns us. Just like the child gets spanked when he runs in the street, God warns us. Pain has a purpose. It's a warning sign. It's telling us that there's something wrong. It doesn't take much to realize that there's something wrong with our planet. Although there is something right with our planet, too. For instance, it seems to be staying in a sustained orbit. And I'm thankful for that. The rotation seems to be pretty consistent. Uh, I haven't heard of people flying off the planet because it's rotating too quickly. Keeps the same distance from the sun. God created this planet to be a perfect environment for human beings. You don't believe that put on an earth suit go to the moon and at some point take it off you will either be burnt to a crisp or frozen solid depending on which side whether you're facing the sun or not god's designed this place for us to live and he preserves it for our purposes but still there's something wrong with our planet it's not the ecology i know we're experiencing global cooling but it's the people that's wrong god took a risk when he created man and woman and the risk was he made them free will beings knowing that they may rebel and they did look what happened in the garden of eden temptation wrong choices and destruction because of sin romans chapter 8 tells us verses 19 to 22 that the entire creation groans because of sin. The deepest problem that exists on our planet is the fact that the human race has rebelled against God. And therefore spiritual disease has invaded our planet and it's pandemic uh, beyond belief. Sin alone affects all of our lives. It affects them socially, physically mentally and spiritually pain is god's warning system that something's wrong c.s lewis said god whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience but he shouts in our pains it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world are you listening to what god's saying I think he's shouting to us now uh, with the megaphone of a pandemic that's telling us there's something wrong. We've been rebelling, and maybe we need to be warned. Well, not only are we warned, but he also guides us uh, into where he wants us to be, where we should be, where it's safer. We need gentle hands to guide us in the way we should go. When I think about gentle hands guiding, I, I envision the sun-darkened, calloused hands of a farmer, just directly, gently, those uh, little chicks heading back to the chicken coop or back to their mother or whatever he's doing. And that's what God does for us. A week or two ago, I was listening to a Christian interview on a radio station, a woman. I'm not sure what her qualifications were. But she was talking about a particular day That was a really rough day for her. And she said she had been crying, but she had activities she had to do. She dropped the kids off. She had to get some things. And she ended up at the meat market. And the butcher turned around and just said to her, how's your day today? And her answer was, not good at all, but still another chance to trust God. And she described that as soon as she said that, this butcher turned away from her and started crying. And after a few seconds, he sort of uh, got to control of himself and he turned around and he said, Is that really true? And she said, Yes, it is. Pain and suffering can produce a healthy dependence on God, it's another chance to trust God. The Apostle Paul went through some pain and suffering, some pretty serious stuff. We don't know all the extent of it, but God told him that uh, part of the process is my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to learn through this process that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Suffering has a way of showing how weak our resources really are. I've had the experience to go into hospital rooms, to visit guys who I knew, young, strong, tough guys, and to observe them in a fetal position, all because of something the size of a grain of sand, a little stone that just was tearing the insides to pieces. You know, it doesn't take much to put us in a humble position. We can choose to despair by focusing on our problems, or we can choose to see the hope that we have in God who's in control and has a plan. Some Christian psychiatrists wrote a while back a book called Happiness is a Choice. There's an awful lot of truth in that title. Some things that happen to us are not going to make sense. And it's only in the long-range view of things, eternity, that will give us complete and perfect understanding. But God promises that it will be clear at that time. We will have understanding. It will all make sense. The pain forces us to take a look at and beyond our immediate circumstances. It helps us to ponder greater issues why am i here what's my purpose what am i supposed to learn from this circumstances come upon me god uses these circumstances these trials these difficulties to direct us back toward him he calls us to trust him to receive our hope from him and to wait upon him the psalmist said happy or blessed is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose help is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That first word, happy, blessed, uh, I can remember in Hebrew classes being taught that uh, it's a pretty extreme word, and it literally could mean they're hilariously happy because they have God who's going to help them, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who created everything, and he's with them. It's a pretty outstanding promise that comes from God. So we're warned, we're guided, we're also, uh, God uses this to mold us. Do you remember, this takes a long way back, the gym teacher that you had, and they made you do things, and sometimes it got to be just a little bit difficult, but they kept pushing you. And the phrase that they often used was, no pain, no gain. And it's like, okay, I get it. But that may have referred to exercise, and in order to get better physically, you need to push yourself a little further. You need to make it hurt. Whether it's a 2K or a marathon, Uh, You have to embrace the process, but all along, keeping your eyes fixed and focused on the goal, the finish line. We need to rejoice about what God can and will do for us and for the glory that he's going to receive through the trials that come. Remember last week, we took a look at James chapter one, and we talked about Uh, The process that was there, James described the process as it starts with trials, but God is teaching us how to persevere. And then when we do persevere and we do that consistently, there's maturity that comes and we can gain wisdom through that. And the end result is joy. The Apostle Paul had his process, a, a, a different version, but it's really similar. He says this in Romans 5, These are things that Pastor Clark read to you earlier. He said, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character brings hope. And then he says in verse 4, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. You combine those two thoughts of James and Paul's, and we find that God uses pain and suffering to produce patience, perseverance, maturity, wisdom, joy, and hope. I'm pretty confident that all of us would like to have those qualities, and especially the end result of joy and hope. Those are great things to have. So God molds us, and he molds us in order to mature us in faith. And he molds us in order that we could be more godly in our daily walk. And he molds us so that we can become more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our life. So this life that we live in Christ is a constant process of character development. We're learning about God. We're learning how to please God. We're learning how to become more like Christ. That's what Galatians chapter five, twenty-two is all about—the fruits of the Spirit. Warren Wiersbe once said that God proves His sovereignty not by intervening constantly and preventing these events how many times i'm sure we've all done it have you prayed oh god please just take this away please get me through this please change things and god can do that and sometimes he does but he proves his sovereignty not by rearranging and changing all the things we don't like according to mr weirsby but by ruling and overruling in them so that even the tragedies end up accomplishing his ultimate purpose i think that's what romans 8 28, 29 are trying to tell us i've often said that romans 8 28, 29 te- teaches us that god is so great he is so great that he can overrule even the most horrific of tragedies and somehow, in the midst of that, bring glory to himself and help us to become more like Jesus Christ. That's amazing. So God's process that he works in you and I is he may warn us, but he'll guide us, and he helps mold us to be who we are, and then ultimately he's going to restore us, or he binds us to himself. The problem is often sin. But it's not always but that problem indicates above anything else that we are not who we should be or where we should be that means there's a crack in the bond of fellowship with between us and our Lord it's not a top secret but you and I are fragile beings we really are I don't know about you but I get sick uh, on occasion we get hurt sometimes we experience loss in life there's hostility oh, i hate that there's depression everyday stresses tough decisions we need to make results in misunderstandings all types of sinful things can come into our lives but suffering helps us see our need for our god and ultimately suffering may help us to see the need for other people as well very often i've observed in my own life that when i'm concerned about other people i am less concerned about my own cares and that's a really really good thing at least for me uh, mentally health wise it's a really good thing as believers in christ we're part of a body We're part of a family. We're a group that we call a church um, that includes everyone who knows Christ as Savior. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that, that chapter 12 is all about the body life of the church. But the one phrase in verse 26 where he says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And that should be true. Our heart should be that if somebody's going through something, that we should go to prayer for them. We should try to see how we can help them, how we can assist them, stand with them. Often, there's not much you can do. I remember a long time ago reading about first day of kindergarten for two little boys, and they got on the bus, and it must have been a city bus, and they rode off to school. Now they were coming back. And the one little boy didn't go home right after school. Of course, parents were concerned. They started looking. They walked. They retraced the bus route, and they saw at a different corner the two little boys sitting there, and they were crying. And the mother was upset, and she asked her son, Why did you get off at this stop? This isn't your stop. You know not to get off here. And the little boy said, Well, my friend wanted he got off here and realized that he was lost and she said well you couldn't have helped him you don't know where he lives he said i know i couldn't help him but i could sit and cry with him." sometimes all we can do is just be there for other people but we do have a responsibility as believers in christ that we're supposed to help one another in their time of need Paul wrote in Ephesians, The whole body joined, knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, and as each part does his own work. So we work together, we're dependent upon each other, and we should uh, build up one another. <clears throat> I have a video on my computer. I have a couple of them in this theme, but I like this a lot because, yes, I'm a Cleveland sports fan, but I'm also a Philadelphia sports fan. And I have a video of Maurice Cheeks. Mo Cheeks used to play for the 76ers. He became a coach in Phoenix and, uh basketball. Um, NBA, big time stuff. And the Phoenix organization one day had a contest for people to sing the national anthem. Whoever wins this is going to get to sing it at the game tonight. Well, a little 13 or 14 year old girl won the contest. I don't think she expected to, but she did. And she was actually really good. And so the next thing she knows, she's in this whirlwind, and all of a sudden she's put in front of 20, 30,000 fans and a TV audience of possibly millions of people, and she has to sing the national anthem. And she starts off singing it and does really well until, I don't know, maybe the third or fourth line, and she can't, and she blanks. She can't think of the words. The music's still playing, and she's weeping a little bit, and Mo Cheeks, he's such a good guy. Everybody from Philadelphia is, but he's really a good guy. So he goes over, puts his arm around her, and he's singing the words to her. His voice is horrible. It's terrible. It's the worst you've ever heard. And she's starting to pick it up, and she finishes strong. But isn't that the way it's supposed to be in the body of Christ? Uh, We don't sing well. Not everybody does, but we can sing together. And we can help encourage people through today figuring out how to do that in our isolated world could be a little bit tricky we need to be creative but all of us are calling out for answers but instead of answers god gives us himself and that's enough it's enough to know that we can trust him it's enough to know our pain and suffering has purpose in him. And it's enough to know that he is in control and he really, really cares. God has given us enough info to help us trust him because he is enough. Some might ask the question of, you know, where is this God? How could God be a loving God if he allows this or that? I think he clearly answered that in romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says this where where's this loving god how can he be a loving god it says let me show you god demonstrates he displays he put it out there for everybody to see god demonstrates his own love for us god does love us and here's how he shows us in this while we were sinners Christ died for us God who is powerful who's mighty who's omniscient he knows everything he knew what we were like he knew the ugliness the darkness the stain of our sins and yet he still said Christ to die for us he still loved us enough that Jesus paid for our price so that we did not have to god is putting us in our place he gently will move us away from danger move us away from destruction and then firmly take us through the process to put us directly in the center of his will join me for prayer please lord thank you so much for loving us not giving up on us but moving in our hearts and our lives in such a way that you will um, warn us, you'll guide us, you'll mold us, but you do restore us, too. You bind us to yourself. Thank you, God, that in a world that needs a lot of answers, we have you. And that you are more than enough for all that we need. Lord, today, thank you uh, for our women who, uh, who have been such godly examples to all of us, to their families and to others. And we pray, Lord, today that for them and all that we would experience a strength that you can give to us, that today would be a day of encouragement, a day of appreciation, and a day of love. And ultimately, a day that brings glory to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.